two, one. Welcome to Sounding Point Podcast. My name is Joseph Christensen, and with me today is the music director of the Chicago Opera Theater, Lydia Yankovskaya. Thank you so much for being with me today. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. And so when I first met you, it was with this um, production of Iolanta in San Francisco. And as a violinist, I love uh, playing in opera. I find it to be an extremely, um, it's an unusual kind of mode of performing where a lot of times when you go into a symphony orchestra performance, you've rehearsed everything beforehand. Ideally, there are no surprises. <laughs> However, in opera, it's very different. Every performance is different. And the, the conductor plays this amazing balancing act between what's going on on stage and what's going on in the pit with the orchestra. And when you play with a great conductor, that experience is seamless. The conductor is interacting seamlessly with what's going on on stage. The musicians um, are notified of when they should come in and when they are doing things. And even though the, the interplay is totally dynamic and totally changing every performance, um, when you have that trust between orchestra and conductor, it's this really special uh, kind of performance. So when I first uh, played with you, I definitely felt that you had this amazing connection between the singers and the orchestra, even though we had almost no time to rehearse and pretty sub ideal conditions, <laughs> you were able to um, sort of bring this uh, uh, performance together, which is amazing. And uh, not only that, but in on the breaks, um, you would be uh, coaching the singers. So you would be sitting down and actually playing the score at the piano and, and singing through the parts with them. And, and as someone who's, who's worked with a lot of conductors in opera, that was something I'd never seen before. I'm like, conductor and vocal coach, huh? <laughs> this is amazing. So I thought that was a, a, unique, uh, a uniquely brilliant way of, uh, of sort of interacting with uh, musicians at all levels of opera. So that was uh, a, just a pleasure working with you. And um... it was a crazy time. So. <laughs> Yeah, it was. I was lucky to have an amazing instrumentalist in the pit because playing <laughs> opera, of course, is not easy. Like you said, yeah. uh, something new can come up at any moment. Things that you rehearsed a certain way suddenly go a totally different direction. Mm -hmm. And with, especially with limited rehearsal time, you can end up in situations where a singer just forgets something, for instance, mm -hmm. or something happens on stage where the right prop doesn't come out mm -hmm. at the right time, where the set doesn't move at the right time, mm -hmm. and suddenly everything is, is thrown upside down. So yeah, it's great to play, to perform with people who um, are ready for all of the curveballs and who are ready to adjust on the fly yeah. because that's what opera is all about. Yeah. Um, the, uh, in that performance, actually, shout out to Yuri, who is uh, one of the other violinists in the opera. But I believe that one of the best opera performance stories slash worst that I've heard is <laughs> that a prop sword at one perform I forget what opera it was, a prop sword came flying into the pit and impaled her violin in the middle of a performance. Oh, no. She actually had to get a new violin. Um, oh, that's terrible. And, I mean, I've never heard oh. of that 
of, of a, an opera emergency like that, I'm sure you might have some other fun stories. But... I, yeah, I'm afraid. I'm afraid that it does happen sometimes. I was in a performance a couple of years ago, uh, and the opera had this scene where the women's chorus was supposed to be gathering water. And the stage director had this brilliant idea that they would pretend that the pit was kind of the water source and they were walking around with pitchers and scooping water out of the pit. And I actually saw this coming. So I saw, said in advance to the director, can you please tell them not to scoop out of the pit? I, I understand what you're going for. Just have them do it a few uh, feedback and nobody will notice. And that's what they did in rehearsal. Yeah. But of course, for the performance, he said, just scoop out of the pit. And the props person was brilliant enough to get them real clay pitches, oh, yeah. which sounds like a great idea, except one of the ladies of the chorus went up to the pit, started scooping the water, and the handle just broke straight off of the pitcher, and the pitcher fell directly between a cello and somebody's head. <laughs> and if it were just half a foot in one direction or the other, either the head or the instrument would have been severely damaged. So um, we, we got very lucky. Oh my God. Uh, but but it, it happens, and I've seen as an audience member also but um when things happen i once saw a tenor fall into a pit oh, no. so, uh, uh, he was okay okay good but uh, uh, but, uh it can be exciting it down can, there it can get risky out there man I, I love that they um they had the dedication to detail to get real clay pictures so that the audience doubtless would totally appreciate from rows and rows away that's perfect yes which uh, again it sounds like a great thing but... <laughs> when when they have the capacity to fall apart it's not oh, so great that's hilarious man well um since i've seen you last i believe you've you've uh, had a baby right i so did congratulations <laughs> thank you and you've also become the music director of the chicago opera theater so congratulations on that as well thank you thank you so how are how do you be a conductor right now <laughs> Can you just kind of go into what uh, kind of how COVID has affected your life and kind of how you're responding to it? Of course. Yeah. I mean, it's it's so challenging, especially because as conductors, we don't make any sound. We rely entirely on the people we work with mm -hmm. uh, to to work with us to create music. So uh, I've uh, played, I've been playing some piano on my own, but it's just obviously not the same. Um, I am very fortunate to have this position at Chicago Opera Theater. I also run an organization called Refugee Orchestra Project. And in particular with COT, we've had to reinvent and reimagine our season a number of times since this first happened in March. And I'm responsible for uh, most of the artistic planning and casting and um, artistic sides of the company. Mm -hmm. And uh, at first, of course, we thought this might last a few weeks and we may have to cancel one production and then go on from there. And mm -hmm. then we thought, well, this will last through the summer. Then we thought yeah. we might have to adjust a few things for oh, fall. And gosh. now we have learned enough to have uh, plans so A through F yes. just in case. Um, but uh, that has certainly been a challenge as we're adjusting and figuring out in particular with singers, singers are considered super spreaders. And so the rules and regulations for how far apart singers need to stand uh, to, in order to be safe, uh, how, how we arrange the audiences. Of course, everybody's aware that it's so complicated in theaters in general with ventilation and flow of audiences and how do people get up to go to the bathroom and mm -hmm. all of those things. Uh, so a lot of my time has been spent really thinking creatively and outside the box 
And actually, I'm really thrilled that we're able to have an outdoor concert uh, with Chicago Opera Theater teaming up with Refugee Orchestra Project in Chicago at the end of August. Wonderful. Uh, just a chamber ensemble outdoors and uh, everybody's socially distanced and masks, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But even that, even a small outdoor concert has had has has involved so much more planning mm -hmm. than usual because we have to figure out how will people sit how will we create bubbles uh, within the seating arrangement mm -hmm. how will we sanitize all the chairs between yeah. um, performances and of course um, it's also a time when most organizations are understaffed and underfunded mm -hmm. and spread really thin so that's been a big part of it but for me also i've, I've loved this opportunity to just sit back and do all the things I feel like I never quite have enough time to do. In particular, as a conductor, I spend so much time on the road. Mm -hmm. I'm constantly traveling. I travel with my family. And so um, it's a lot of work to get everybody from place to place mm -hmm. and settle down. And um, I spend a lot of time on flights and adjusting mm -hmm. to time changes, uh, differences, et cetera. And so to be home for this extended period of time, I actually don't know in my professional career, if I've ever been home or in one place yeah. for this long. Same. Um, and yeah, and it, it's been a wonderful thing. I focus, first of all, uh, especially in, as an opera conductor, I really have to speak and or at least understand very well a number of languages. Mm -hmm. And I've studied all of the opera uh, Russian is my first language. And then I've studied kind of all the opera languages, some of them more extensively than others. But it's very hard to keep them up. Right. And with um, with language, you have to with language, you have to constantly be doing it in mm -hmm. order um, to not forget it, even if it's a language you speak fluently. Right. And one of the things I've been doing is um, I've been doing these digital digital tutoring and just speaking to people for oh. uh, almost every day. Actually, I spend an hour in some different language oh, just speaking cool. to people abroad. And because everybody's home yeah. on their computers, it's easy to connect with a really great teacher in Germany or in Italy or mm -hmm. in in France or wherever, um, and just studying a lot of languages. I've been studying some scores that I haven't conducted yet and that mm. I really love. Like I've been kind of going through the Mahler symphonies, Wonderful. Uh, some of which I've done, but many of them I haven't and probably won't for some mm -hmm. time. Um, but it just pieces that I love and I can dig into. And I've also been connecting with people right before we started this podcast today. You mentioned how great it is to actually reconnect. Mm -hmm. Um, and one amazing thing is I've, I've spoken a lot to other conductors or other musicians who are people whom I know and admire and appreciate, but we never get to talk unless, unless we happen to be in the same city at mm -hmm. the same time. Um, it's very difficult to, to meet up with other musicians. So that has also been an unexpected plus of this situation. Yeah. Wow. I'm um, on the language front. So, do you find, so you are not using like Duolingo or apps in that way. You're using tutors, right? Or how, how, how so, do you find it? Like, be, I mean, uh, being partially fluent in English and, and being even less fluent in <laughs> German, <laughs> um, I, um, I like probably the most fluent in German I ever was, was just in my German class I took at college. And then it's been a steady drop off ever since, <laughs> but I mean, I've always assumed that immersion is kind of the way of 
of learning. So I don't you know, know. What, what would I, be your advice for learning? Yeah, language? I think it depends on the person because every person learns things so differently. And I have a number of friends who speak many languages and I find that everyone approaches it so differently. But mm. for me, ultimately, it's a balance. It can't be just one thing. I don't do so well with apps unless it's a language uh, that's brand new to me. So if I'm studying something just to get a basic sense of it. So if I'm traveling somewhere like I'm going to Japan just on vacation and I want to be able to get around, maybe right. I'll use an app to uh, get a basic uh, hang of things but i actually like thinking grammatically and analytically mm -hmm. which doesn't work for everybody but right. i generally do a combination of i buy um or i if i have something if it's a language i've studied i'll review grammar mm -hmm. and i usually i have like right now um if, let's say french for instance which i studied really extensively from age 12 through the end of college and beyond it i worked in france and studied abroad there um but you kind of lose some, especially grammatical mm -hmm. concepts over time. So I've been systemat systematically going through um, a high level French grammar mm. text and kind of doing exercises and forcing myself to think of it that way rather than just going on automatic, mm. which is reminding me of some things that I do badly or mm -hmm. do wrong or, or never really grasped in my studies. And then speaking to people, I find it's really helpful and um, because it forces you to really use it. It's one thing to do exercises or to understand grammatical concepts. Mm -hmm. It's a whole nother thing to use the language. Also, so often what you get in these books is not actually how people speak. Um, so I've been spending at least two or three hours with different people and I work with a number of different people purposely. Um, I use a, a, actually something called italki, which is a really inexpensive way to um, find tutors abroad. And I just speak to people for an hour about different subjects. Mm -hmm. And while I speak to them, they'll say, you know, you keep making this mistake or you keep making this mistake, or this is really the more natural and contemporary way to say mm -hmm. you sound like you're an opera libretto. <laughs> yeah. so, um, and, uh, the, and it also forces you to kind of meet people and learn about different subject matter, which is also fascinating. And then in addition, I do, I listen to podcasts, right. especially while I go jogging. It's an easy way to, to get some of the language while you're doing something mm -hmm. else and listening it for me, I've always found it the hardest, um, thing mm -hmm. out of language learning, especially because different people speak so differently and right. there's so many different dialects. Yes. Uh, so I try to do that as well. Hmm. Okay. I'm going to try some of those. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little of everything. Yeah. yeah. But, but again, it might not work for you. It's, right. I think totally. I, different I like the person. idea of, of approaching it structurally just so that you have the framework for it more. I mean, there's a lot to be said for just the get, get in there and start doing it as well, because that's probably the problem most of us have. It's just not even spending the time on it. So. But actually, having, but it's hard yeah. to get in there and start doing that. You have to be very brave. Mm -hmm. And um, I think there's some people like that. Um, my husband's actually like that. We'll travel somewhere and he won't have studied a language at all, but he'll very quickly just pick up basic phrases. Mm -hmm. And that's the way he learns. For me, I won't open my mouth unless I feel like I can <laughs> say at least some things eloquently. Right. I'll just uh, be afraid to speak up. Mm -hmm. so. That's cool. Well, that's awesome. You're using your extra time in quarantine for productive things like that. <laughs> that's wonderful. So. Also some unproductive things, yeah. like <laughs> just being at home and resting. And that's great too. Yes, so. it is. That is also very necessary. So 
Yeah, tell me more about your um, concert coming up at the end of August. Yeah, so uh, I run an organization, in addition to my work at Chicago Opera Theater, I run an organization called Refugee Orchestra Project, uh, which celebrates the contributions of refugee composers and musicians to our culture and society throughout history and today. And Chicago Opera Theater, a few years ago, um, did Minotti's the Console and got some funding from Opera America to continue some work that COT was doing in conjunction with that um, production of reaching out to local refugee communities. And we had been planning some projects for the summer already, of course, things kind of fell apart. And what we realized is that the most effective way would be to bring this organization that I already run together with COT in this performance. And we have performers from all over the world, some fantastic composers. And there are many classic composers that people don't realize were refugees. Mm. Uh, Donizetti was a refugee for a part of his life as he was uh, escaping political persecution. For instance, Rachmaninoff uh, is on there. Um, we have people like Korngold, who may be better known right. um, for this. Um, Chopin is someone who had to leave Poland for France, right, and couldn't go back. Uh, we also have a wonderful composer named Milad Yusufi, who lives in New York City. He's 25. He came here from Afghanistan a few years uh, back and is a very, very talented composer and actually also a painter and a poet, kind of an artist of all realms. And so we're performing some of his works and featuring um, a couple of singers, Amanda Majeski, who is um, a major soprano, lives here in, in the Chicago area. And we have a new young artist coming into uh, COT named Nida Mutalifu, who, who is Uyghur. She's wow. from um, that, that group in northern China that's been very much persecuted. And uh, so it's a wonderful opportunity to just showcase, how, and I think right now more important than ever, to showcase how important cultural exchange is, yeah. how important it is for us to come together uh, to welcome people from other places and to make music together and to have this um, this sharing of our cultural wealth. Um, and in particular, in particular, when it comes to music, this is so important because mm -hmm. music is. Um, it's a, it's a universal language that we can all not to spell the cliche, but it is a way for all of us to connect no matter where we come from. And I think that's very important. And at a time when most borders are closed, when for the first time in a very long time in, in our history, we can't travel freely to most of the world. I think it's become more important than ever for us to, to celebrate uh, the wealth of culture within our world together in this way. Well, that's, um, yeah, this is um, quite a, I mean, what do you even say? <laughs> this time is so bizarre. It's amazing um, that this project, you're giving people with this background as refugees a voice and an ability to express themselves. What do you see? Um, I, I think this is uh, a topic that's been coming up a lot for classical musicians, and I mean just musicians in general. They're like, what, what is the, what is our role right now in social change? Like, what, what can we do, in a way? I, f I feel like there's this yeah. weird thing where, where artists, in a way, art is very self-contained, and 
we judge art in many ways by its own standards or like and that's that's beautiful right we 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 think of i don't know what some in a way music feels safe because when we're doing it we get to focus on these beautiful musical things like like interpretation and and intonation <laughs> and and technique and all these things that go towards actually making the beautiful the music better right but then also it has this social dimension so um yeah i don't know what do you think about our role well i think art and artists and in particular music are better positioned than just about anything else in our culture to enact the kind of social change that we're looking for right now um, in particular, when it comes to the representation of plurality of voices, when it comes to people coming together and doing something together at a time when there is so much hostility, I mm -hmm. think, around us in, in so many ways. Um, I, as musicians, I think the way we're trained is really the problem, mm. in particular in the so-called classical music realm. So often the focus is on technique. And part of that comes with how do you achieve uh, traditional success, or at least forget traditional success, how do you get jobs yeah, in classical exactly. music? Um, and the way, because it's so competitive, because there's, especially in this country, it is so competitive, there are so many people who are on such a high level and so few mm -hmm. jobs, that it ends up being about this technical agility or something that can be judged on a more objective level, right? Because so much of music is subjective. And it's um, it, as a result of that, the way we're trained is that there's this focus on these objective things, mm -hmm. like like your intonation being absolutely perfect yeah. at every moment, yeah. your, your fingers moving really quickly, knowing all those orchestral excerpts, whatever yeah. it is at any moment. But in reality, music is not about that. Um, all of those technical things are important, but they are a tool. They're not an end in and of a, themselves. They are a tool to reaching an audience, to creating great art so that we can impact the people who are hearing this music that we're making, right? That is really what it's all about. It's, are we impacting the audience or are they totally uninterested in what we're doing? And I think as a result of how our field is structured, especially in the US, as a result of how our training is um, is undertaken in response partially to that structure, we forget that ultimately it's about impacting change. It's about impacting that audience and making them feel something. Mm -hmm. um, but I think uh, that once we come back to remembering that it is about the that impact, it's about serving our communities, it's about serving our audiences, it's about making people feel something and come together in some way, because that's what's great about art. I think as soon as we uh, we keep those goals in mind, everything will change. Um, because the, this is an art form, um, music in particular is an art form that allows us to reach so many different kinds of people uh, and I think many of the problems that we're seeing have to do with the structure of our organizations, have to do with our mindset, have to do with uh, systemic issues that have been there historically for generations and generations. 
but none of the problems I think are really in the arts, art itself. Mm -hmm. um, and we can only welcome more art. There are problems in art that we've neglected, for right. instance, but, but there is so much great art for us to make and so many people in this country in particular who make that art, who have the ability to make it on such a high level and who have the ability to bring so many different perspectives to the table. And that's really exciting. And I hope, I really hope that this moment will bring us back to our, the core of our mission. I think, again, even during this moment, it's really easy to get stuck on um, just the, 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 uh, the material things mm -hmm. rather than remembering that it's about impacting our audience. That is so, it's, it's so, so funny just hearing you talk about that almost really, in a way it's, it's sounds like the most obvious thing, thing in the world. Like, oh yeah, we're, we're supposed to connect with people, but it's so funny. Like as a violinist, as you're, t you're talking about like the years of training and everything. I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> I'm just thinking of all the, all the pressure I've put on myself and all the, uh, sort of, um, the conditional difficult. And, you know, I'm, I'm complaining, I'm coming from incredible privilege to be able to do this as a, as a living but um there is incredible pressure on musicians today to achieve like this uh high, and, high and standard. i think when we when we achieve a high level of proficiency also for most of us as students especially like we're so stuck on just doing it the right way right and it's usually at least for me that was the case it was once i really maybe in graduate school or maybe even after at some point i just something happened and I just realized, oh, it's not about yeah. these technical things. And partially I was able to realize that because I got to a point technically where I was comfortable, mm -hmm. but it shouldn't have to be that way necessarily. And what I've realized over time is that the greatest musicians and the people I admire, my colleagues whom I admire the most are the people who in their core remember that it's not about just the technical mm -hmm. things it's about that connection with the audience even while they worry about the technical things that right. they see them as a means to an end mm -hmm. um, and even when we know intellectually that's the case and of course we all know intellectually that that's the case um really feeling that mm -hmm. is a totally different world hmm. that's that is yeah it's definitely There was a, uh, not to go on, on too much of a tangent, but uh, there was a violinist who lived near where I did growing up. Uh, his name's Gilles Pop. He was this um, French violinist, kind of a crossover um, guy. And I, I remember back in the day, his website had this whole section on it called On Removing the Mental Contagion Acquired at Music Conservatories. <laughs> <laughs> and it was basically that... Um, it was basically that uh, idea where it was, it's like those, the tools and the excellence is so, we, we see it around us, we're surrounded by it in conservatory, we want to achieve it so much, but then to, to become consumed by that, that, um, to be consumed by that attitude of, oh, I need to, reach these standards in this and this way then and then forget the core forget the musical expression is um yeah it's it's a danger it's our occupational hazard <laughs> but and yeah. to be fair i think it's getting better um i've uh i i mean for example i've um 
had some conversations recently with Aubrey Bergauer, who is at San Francisco Conservatory, who's doing some amazing work on making sure that musicians, that it's not just conservatory training, right? And that it's this narrow path, but that conservatory students are aware of what's happening in the greater world, that it is a dialogue, right, between different people. And I think there's so many conservatories that are making some of these changes. Um, at New England Conservatory for some time, they've also been ensuring that their students, for instance, go out into the community and do certain kinds of projects uh, that people connect to the rest of the community to their listeners to their audience mm -hmm. um, and i think that's very important and I, I do believe the mindset is shifting for musicians which is really important that's wonderful i i was a uh, part of a panel recently with um classical revolution shout out to cherith <laughs> um <laughs> and basically there were some other um musicians and conductors there um and basically the the topic was many of the issues arising from the COVID-19 situation. And and separately throughout the the um, panel, I think people brought up the two issues a lot of, well, how do we get more young composers? Like how do we, how do we challenge or not challenge, but change our idea of canon so that we create more room for contemporary composers to enter into this space with, with uh, you know, symphonic repertoire. And also, separately, how do we open our field to a more diverse performer base and more audience? How do we get more people of color involved and welcomed into our world? And it, it struck me that it's really the same issue. Right? We need Well, and I think yeah, it is. It's it's the same. It is the same problem, and it also is the same problem as who is on the administrations of our organizations, right? It, it's systemic, and it's in all areas. Who's on the boards of our organizations? Uh, but I, I, you mentioned the idea of the canon, and I think part of it is that it's that we have this view, or the way we've been taught, is that the canon is the canon because these are the best works. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't work that way. Even if you just talk about the classical canon, it's always evolving. Uh, Bach for a time was completely unknown until another composer brought his music to the forefront. Now he's seen as the greatest composer of all time by mm -hmm. most musicians and by so many. Um, there are other works that are part of a canon for 50 years and then they disappear and then maybe they come back. Um, and even, and this is even talking about kind of the quote unquote classics mm -hmm. that we um, discuss, but there are so many other works, of course, that have been ignored or neglected or for some reason didn't make it into the so-called canon in the first place, or maybe did and then got taken out. Why does the canon as we know it exists? I think it exists because it makes people's jobs easier, um, both for the audience, for the conductors or whoever's programming uh, certain things for the performers, it's much easier to say, oh, I need a piece for this instrumentation. Let's see, I need to program something with double winds um, that fits, that's 13 minutes long, that'll fit into this part of the program, because inevitably we, we have to worry about so many mm -hmm. uh, considerations that are non-musical when programming. It needs to be upbeat to balance this other thing on the program. 
Um, so what can I program? Well, I'm just going to go back to the composers that I know and love, and I'm just going to go back to what I think of as the canon, or I'll even put pull off that book off the shelf <laughs> that, uh, for instance, conductors often use this, this book called The Daniel's Guide that's basically oh. just a list of quote unquote, canonic works, uh, which is problematic. It makes people's jobs easier. It is much harder to actually be fully aware of what's out there, to do your homework, to dig for work, be it old work or new work, to be on the lookout for the composers that are up and coming who have the most distinct, exciting voices, mm -hmm. uh, to really take your time and search and dig and find and bring new things to your audience that are good. Because the thing that happens in between is you have the people who program the canon, then you have the programming of, I'm gonna program things that are off the beaten path just because they're off the beaten path, but I won't really take the time to dig in and find what's great, right? And then sometimes you have audiences who hate contemporary music and they say, oh, I hate all new music, but it's really because what they've been hearing is either only one kind of taste that can also be problematic that may suit some of them and not others or they may only been here be hearing that um you know 10 minute program opener right. and nothing more substantial yeah. and those 10 minute program openers may be just whatever the publisher sent that right. day right, as a point of reference and it takes a lot more work to program in an inclusive way. And it takes a lot more work, the same for recruiting administrators or musicians or anybody else. It takes a lot more work to find the right people because the people and the works and the things that you really want are often the ones that you have to really put effort into finding. And I think the majority of people just don't want to put in that time or feel that they don't have that time or don't feel that it is their responsibility. Maybe now is a time where people have more time <laughs> and they can actually start to think exactly. about this more. And I, absolutely, and I actually think that's affecting the field in a very positive way, that people are digging in and actually learning. Um, not everybody has more time, also to be fair, there are people who have to work harder than ever and juggle families or deal with other challenges of today. But I think some do, and uh, those who do, even just by cutting out their commute time, uh, and those who do, I think, are taking the time to dig into new repertoire, to do research, to f discover something that they hadn't known before, which is so important. And the, um, as you've kind of said, the, the impetus for change and the ability to do so lies a lot of the time. <clears throat> in classical music. Obviously, there's a couple different uh, avenues. I play in a string quartet. It's um, very small, obviously. We're very agile, but there's also, you know, there's a, there's a limited amount that we can accomplish on our own as four people. But then with a symphony orchestra, for example, or an opera company, you have this bigger organization. You have a little more... Um, a little more power to influence the arts in your city and your, your region and, and the country. And then you also have music directors, you have this, the board, you have, it's all, in a way there's these gatekeepers who have traditionally upheld this idea of canon and, and traditionally upheld this, this form of classical music we're familiar with. So now, kind of what you're saying, I mean, you're, you're using your platform as a music director 
to help influence. Like, you know, we wouldn't have Bach today in the way we have him without Mendelssohn. And he was the music director or whatever they said back then of, uh, <laughs> of uh, the um, Gewandhaus, right, in Leipzig. So it was, that's like an early example of someone in an influential position who used his platform to put out someone who he believed to be valuable. And then now, obviously, the music world is unimaginable without him. So, well, it, But one of the challenges today also, I think even back in the time of Mendelssohn, as far as I understand, um, I think Mendelssohn, it seems to me, had, had a lot of autonomy. Um, I am very fortunate that I also work in an organization that is open and will go along with the things that I propose that uh, we have a board and a staff who are very open-minded, who are interested in changing the field and moving it forward. That is very fortunate and it's in many ways unusual. One of the challenges is that it takes more than one person. It really takes everybody because music, orchestral playing, opera, any of this, it is a collaborative effort by nature and people need to buy into what we're doing in order for it to function. And in particular in the United States, our funding structure makes this very challenging. We tend to be very risk averse in our, especially in our large institutions, because taking a risk can um, can cause the collapse of an institution very quickly. Even large institutions are often in positions that are much more precarious than I think most people realize. And so what, what happens in opera companies, for instance, will mount even large opera companies, usually it's six operas a year or so at the most. And you can't afford and you can't take the risk of having one or two of them be a flop right. and certainly not many of them being a flop. And so we go back to what we know. We go back again and again to what we're familiar with. Mm -hmm. And more importantly, so many classical music organizations rely on a small number of donors who give a very large amount of money. The people who can afford to do so or who can support the arts in this way usually are people who have been around for a really long time. They're great music lovers. They're very generous. They have been in the industry for a very long time. But because, partially because they've been here for a long time, again, they have a, um, an opinion about what works because it's what they've seen work in the past. Right. Um, and that can also be challenging for organizations uh, because, again, at COT, we're very lucky that our biggest donors are also very open-minded. But partially, we can be this flexible because we're in a city with other major institutions that provide people with the canonic repertoire. And so we can push the boundaries. Um, there's also nothing wrong with presenting canonic repertoire. A lot of this repertoire is fabulous mm -hmm. and really great and deserves to be heard again and again. I think the problem is when we see that as our only option and when we don't balance that repertoire very carefully with other works. And in my opinion, um, new work should be on the, perhaps even on the upper, uh, uh, we should have more new work in some ways than, than older work. We should have work that's reflecting of our, reflective of our times because all of that old work, when Verdi was writing his music, most of what you saw at the opera house was new. Mm -hmm. uh, it was the work of the day, of the time. Um, and that's the case in most arts industries and fields. and. I think somehow in the middle of the 20th century, we got stuck 
and partially we got stuck because of this funding structure because right. of the way our organizations must be or at least feel that they must be risk averse um, in order to to su succeed um, and part of it again goes back to what i said about doing the research and taking responsibility because to take the risk you have to be really confident that the thing you're taking the risk on is great right and that it's going to be successful and i i think many people feel that don't have that confidence or don't have the time to do the research to have that confidence or maybe don't feel that they have all the training necessary to make those calls and that's also challenging right wow that's what if you're a conductor and you're looking for a a new composer or a new opera to put into your season how do you find that uh, great question. And it's a number of ways. So one is that I make a point of making sure it is possible for people to contact me. Um, and composers will send me things all the time. I think there are so many artists whom you really can't get to. You have to go through 10 layers of publicists and and um, managers and whoever and uh, assistants and whoever else, and you just can't get to that person. And by the time you email all those other people, right, the artist will never actually see right. the work. Yeah. Um, and that's problematic because that in a way is also a way of gatekeeping and keeping people out. Mm -hmm. um, and I make sure that it is possible for someone who, if they really want to, they can get in touch with me and they can send me their materials. Um, I get a lot of stuff. I don't look at it right away every time, but at least a few times a year, I sit down and I look through the pile of things, or maybe occasionally I'll just glance at something and I'll say, oh, this looks interesting, but it's not, uh, I don't have any kind of platform for it right now. So I'll put it aside and maybe I'll look at it ages later. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes also when artists do this, they think that um, their stuff just gets tossed to the side. And I'm sure there are some people who just toss it to the side, but there are many others who like me do look at it, may not have the time to respond to every single person with detailed comments on their work because that would take an enormous amount of time, but did glance at it and is either keeping it on the shelf for later or has it in mind or will remember your name next time they see you or maybe Maybe thought well this isn't quite what I'm looking for but maybe next time this person contacts me I'll remember what they sent my way so that's one way and I really do take the time and see it as part of my responsibility to look at all these things that come my way um, the other way is through uh, networks of people I trust and what's important there is what kind of networks do you have right because I think everybody relies on their networks of other artists um, when programming or when choosing repertoire or when seeking new talent. But your network could be made up of a lot of people who are just like you or people who are in very high up positions by the time, so that by the time anything gets to them already, it's gone through, um, again, all of those gatekeepers. Um, I make a point of having a network of people I trust who are not just working on the highest level. Some of them might be, some of them are doing grassroots work, or some of them are running storefront organizations, as some of them are training young talent in conservatories or universities, or maybe even in totally non-traditional training spaces. And I reach out to my network and I make sure that people are aware that I'm always looking for work. And if I'm looking for a type of piece that I think maybe somebody within any of those levels might 
have some access to, I reach out to them. The same thing for administrative positions when we have something, even something I'm not directly responsible for. So for instance, at Chicago Opera Theater, I'm not directly responsible for hiring our staff. But if I know we have a position opening up that maybe there are people out there who are really qualified, who would not be the typical candidates or who might not be the ones following on Musical America or wherever we post the jobs, I make sure to reach out to some of those networks and say just FYI, we're, we're doing this thing or to reach out to people I've encountered who maybe would be interested in something like this. And that again, it's, it's extra effort, but I think it is the responsibility of each and every single one of us to do this kind of work and to uh, go the, take the extra step to seek out the right people and also to give opportunities. Mm -hmm. Because I think the other, uh, the other thing that often happens, especially again, in this risk averse classical music world is that we feel that everyone we uh, hire every piece of music that we play or every composer to whom we give the opportunity must be that flawless idea of whatever we have in mind. Um, but it doesn't actually work that way. And in my experience, sometimes the people who check off all the boxes aren't actually the ones you want. Mm. Um, and I make a point of, of also realizing that there is such a thing as potential and rising to the occasion mm -hmm. and um, being really seeking people out who I think are really bright and really driven and have really great ideas. And maybe they haven't figured this out or that out yet, but I really believe that they could rise to the occasion, especially given the right tools. And that's the other place where people fail. Sometimes I see this, the, uh, the, the following happens. So sometimes an organization will identify, let's say a composer who's really promising, really bright, very inexperienced. And then in particular with opera, I see this all the time because opera is so hard. It is so hard to write opera. There are just so many things involved. And then they don't give this person any tools and they just say, oh, write, a, write an opera for us. Um, and it ends up flopping. And then they say, well, I guess they just weren't up to the task or I thought they could rise up to the occasion, but they just couldn't. So too bad, goodbye. Um, and then this individual doesn't get more opportunities, but it is our responsibility, if, especially if we take a risk on someone to give them the tools they need to succeed. Um, and that I think is also very important. That's a fascinating idea of, I mean, being, being aware that an artist, an emerging artist can't, can be set up for success or set up for failure. And that if, exactly. if you are helping them, you really want to give it the best shot. Uh, well, and I think also in, and this goes back again to the way we're trained to that you either can do it or you can't do it, mm -hmm. right? There's this black and white thing. But I even think about myself when I was just starting out, there's so many things that I didn't know or did badly that I do well now. And partially because I did them really badly, I kind of figured out how to do them and I can do well now. And I think often if someone does things, something badly, we just write them off. Mm -hmm. um, Right. And I, I think that's important because in particular in music, it's such an endless pursuit and we're always all learning and all getting better and all figuring out new sides of our art and ourselves and what we do. Um, at Chicago Opera Theater, we have a program for composers called the Vanguard Composer Program, where we uh, I work with opera composers, emerging opera composers and emerging opera composers in some cases. Uh, cases means composers who are very established in other fields. So our, our composer who just graduated, Stacey Garup, 
is an exceptionally accomplished symphonic composer. She's been performed by major symphonies. She's incredible. Just, um, I, she's an amazing orchestrator and a thinker and uh, an amazing musical voice, but she had never written an opera or spent time in opera rehearsals. She really wanted to, but if you haven't lived in the theater, it's very hard to write a successful theatrical work because that's a whole different side of it. Um, and there are other composers I've come across who come from just a totally different world. I worked with one composer um, recently, uh, Ex Lee, who comes from kind of um, uh, from from DJing and house music and again, a totally different world, but brought that to uh, classical instruments mixed with electronics in a way that was not like anything I'd ever heard. Um, and that's also really valuable. So seeing all of these different sides, I think. That's wonderful. I think it's, um, it's very encouraging to a young artist to get that support from someone and almost like that vote of confidence and to, to be validated in that way, even if you're, you're not traditionally from that field. I mean, even if like I, um, I started out like as a blue, like a fiddler, a bluegrass fiddler. And uh, I, I just remember, yeah, I mean, a few teachers, a few mentors, a few people who believed in me made all the difference, you know? And so that's really cool that you're, you're giving that opportunity to some people through the Vanguard initiative and other things. Well, and I imagine that your fiddling brings something to your playing also that um, that other people don't bring because all music is interconnected and having experience in, in bluegrass inform, can inform your classical playing in a totally new and interesting way that can set you apart. My teacher, Axel, because I was, I think I was working on Sibelius or some, you know, difficult violin concerto and I was so tight. and my teacher, Axel Strauss in undergrad, he would have me just stop and he's like, okay, um, play Red Haired Boy or like play Soldier's Joy or play, play one of these like old fiddle tunes and I would. And he's like, okay, now play Mendelssohn again. <laughs> and he, his <laughs> point great. was just like, you know how to do this. It's loose, it's fluid. Like you have to play it as if you're inventing it. You have to play it as if you're improvising. So that was really that helpful. So, I love that, great teacher. <laughs> yes, he was. So. I wanted to um, ask you, um, we're coming up on an hour here, we're doing great. Um, and yeah, so I was just wanted to ask you kind of about your background as, um, as a pianist and vocalist, like how did you get started in your musical life? So uh, my, my mother, who is an engineer by training, loves, loves music and she studied piano and voice when she was younger. And I think she probably would have pursued music, but it, it was strongly discouraged by her parents and she ended up going into a different direction. But as a result, um, she surrounded me with music when I was a kid. So we always had great recordings playing. I, was, I grew up in St. Petersburg, Russia, which has so many musical institutions with inexpensive tickets. And it's normal for children to go to all kinds of performances. And so I was taken to concerts starting and before I can remember, I was going to all kinds of concerts and all kinds of performances. Um, and I started playing piano when I was six. And when I was five, I um, started singing with a children's chorus in St. Petersburg. It's a children's chorus of radio and television, which was this very intensive uh, 
uh, chorus at each five, I had to learn how to know how to sight read in order to get in. I mean, it was like do, re, mi, re, do. It wasn't uh -huh. anything complicated, but you had to have some sight reading skills. And it, we rehearsed multiple times a week for several hours. Wow. And it was very, very intensive and very disciplined, um, which I think I struggled with as a kid. I actually got kicked out of a concert once because I kept talking and not paying attention during rehearsal. And they told me that I have to sit out a concert, which was a great learning experience, I think. Uh, but I was very lucky to start in Russia, I think, because um, the music education system there is very holistic. So as a child, when you start playing an instrument, if your primary instrument is not piano, you take piano as a secondary instrument. Piano was my primary instrument. So, um, uh, it, and everybody had to sing in an ensemble or play in an ensemble. So again, if you don't play an orchestral instrument, you have to sing in a chorus or do some sort of ensemble playing. We had uh, twice a week, we would meet for music theory and basic history. And it's all seen as one. So as a kid, you learn how to play chord progressions or basic kind of transposition and basic chord progressions in harmony. It's not just theoretical and it's related to your performance, um, which I think often here, um, the music education is, is approached in a way that everything is very separate. Um, and having that base really early on, I think was extremely helpful because it allowed me throughout my life to continue to think of things in a more unified way to tie harmony into what I was actually performing as opposed to kind of a theoretical study on its own um, to tie performing in a vocal ensemble to how I was playing on the piano or et cetera. Um, and when we moved to the United States, I also took up the violin and I played violin actually through the end of college, but it was always a secondary instrument um, for me. Uh, and I, I, I actually, uh, a couple of years ago, I donated my violin because it sat in its case for years <laughs> and it was just not fair to the instrument. Um, so, but I still play piano um, and I played very seriously in high school. I had some wonderful teachers, um, mentors who were a duo piano. Uh, they were husband and wife, but they performed duo piano repertoire, Vladimir Plashikov and Elena Winter. And they didn't really have students, but my best friend in high school was also a pianist and he came up to them after a concert and just said, will you teach me? And they ended up taking him on and he tagged me along and the two of us would go once a week and we would spend an hour and a half with one teacher and he would be with the other and then we'd flip. Oh, wow. And so it would be these really long lessons um, with two different people hmm. also over the course of kind of th these long lessons. And they were both uh, musicians also, I think partially because they were primarily performers who were at the end of their performing careers they were really interested in approaching music in a really holistic way. Um, and I, for me, that was life-changing. Um, and when I got to college, I, I actually wasn't sure I wanted to study music. Uh, I, in fact, I was sure I wasn't going to pursue music professionally at first um, because I didn't know what I would do in music. Um, I probably, the path for me would have been as a pianist but I didn't want to be a concert pianist. The many endless hours in a practice room alone just were not for me. I knew that I loved working with people. Uh, I wasn't sure that teaching was right for me. I had done some teaching at that point and I, I enjoyed teaching, but it just wasn't, it wasn't me. 
And so I studied philosophy and music and I studied languages and I studied other things. But when I had the choice, I always chose music, I found. Um, and I, I was conducting already at that point, but I didn't really realize that it's a career that you could have or that it's a thing that you can do. It, it was something that I did, but I didn't think of it, I think, in a long-term way. I'm not sure why, um, maybe because I didn't really know many conductors or personally it seemed like this far-off thing that somebody else who wasn't me <laughs> did. Uh, but I had opportunities. I was lucky that I was given opportunities to conduct a lot. Um, and I found my calling in it. I found that in conducting, I, I did the things that I loved the most, which was working with people, bringing people together, uh, thinking about music in, in a way that related everything that I was performing to culture and society and language and literature. And that's really, for me, was the most exciting thing that I could... Um, bring people together and also create organizations and shape something. I, I like to build things. I like to shape things and build things. And um, I like to work with other people. And I also like that the responsibility wasn't all on me. <laughs> and that made me a better performer. Mm -hmm. As a pianist, I found it so stressful to have it be just me and this piano and all of these notes, right? <laughs> and there's just there's just so many notes and it is so stressful and there's so much technically and intellectually that you have to put together and it's all just on you. Mm -hmm. um, and I found that extremely difficult from a kind of a mental health uh, perspective. And as a conductor, I don't have to look at the audience, first of all, at all. Um, and I just can bring people together and trust them to do their work well and help them do their work well, which is my job. Mm -hmm. um, but if I miss a note, it, you know, I don't have to feel like if I miss a note, it's all over, which is the <laughs> thing we were talking, bringing it back yeah. to what we started with. Yeah. Um, that that was part of my training as well. And it, it can be very challenging to, to get past that. Mm -hmm. And as a conductor, I was able to just think about the music, just think about impacting the audience and bringing the musicians together. And that was very exciting. I um, remember Oh, it's just I was I'm just curious as a performer, as someone who hasn't ever really conducted before, um, because you mentioned kind of getting nervous for playing solo, and obviously when you are playing solo, there's there's no one else there, <laughs> it's all on you. <laughs> so there's definitely this feeling of pressure. But I'm wondering if do you get nervous when you conduct? You know, never. Wow. Which is interesting. Never. Um, as a pianist, I would often get very nervous and. And I played my entire life. You'd think that after a time, but maybe it's because of that, that I started at age five and I was playing these giant pieces and I better be good, right? I, I, I put all this time and energy and I practice for seven hours a day for months <laughs> to get this ready. I better be good. Um, I, don't, I don't know if it's that or it just starts to be a habit or, or uh, but um, as a pianist, yeah, I, I often got very nervous and still I, I play often mostly accompanying singers i never get nervous coaching singers like what you were talking about with the alanta i can jump down at the piano and coach singers through a thing um if suddenly i'm performing with a singer and i have a long solo passage that's inevitably where <laughs> things go wrong um i yeah as a conductor interestingly i never get nervous i think as a conductor i'm able to for some reason it's 
on the piano, I can't do this, but as a conductor, I'm able to totally just focus on the music making and solving the problems at hand. And again, I think it's because it's not on me in the same way. Yes, it's on me. And if I, uh, if I'm in a complicated beat patterns that I miss one, whatever, it can, things can go wrong. But really, it's um, uh, my job is to empower others. Hmm. And with my just the way my personality and my being works to me, that is something that I feel comfortable doing and I don't get nervous doing. Um, and when it's just me on that stage with the piano, it's a totally <laughs> different world. I, I think you're a born conductor. That would terrify me <laughs> getting up in <laughs> yeah, front I mean, of an I orchestra. Think I, each person is so different. And there are people, of course, who feed off of solo performance. Mm. We, we all know people who like for them, that is the thing where they are most themselves. Mm -hmm. It's when it's them and their instrument and they're just making music on that instrument in in a way. Um, and then there are people who feed off of ensemble playing or whatever form it might take. But for me, it's really this. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I, I definitely feel like when I play it's like I'm much more comfortable playing violin than I am like public speaking or something or even singing. Yeah. I actually did some singing in, uh, when I was growing up. And um, I almost feel like my violin is my little line of defense between my audience and me. <laughs> it's like yeah, I, well, so I at least know how to speaking, do this. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's amazing because we're performers, but so many of us, public speaking is the thing that can make you nervous yeah. even though we speak all the time, yeah. right? And it doesn't require the same kind of specialized skill set. No, but actually early on, as, cause as, a, as a conductor, you end up having to speak in public all the time. And I remember very early in my career, I ran a new music ensemble and we'd often talk a little bit between pieces or do little interviews with the composers. Um, and that was the part that made me nervous, not performing the music. It was the having to speak before performing or after performing. And I'd even find myself sometimes performing, but worrying about the speaking <laughs> I have to do, which is terrible. But over time, of course, I've had to do it so much that now I, I don't worry about it mm -hmm. at all. And it's become a second nature somehow. Uh, but that's something I had to work towards a while with conducting. I think from the beginning, it just felt natural hmm. in my case. That's amazing. I wanted to ask you, um, about uh, working with Lauren Mazel. I mean, I back in 2012, I actually played in the Castleton Festival Orchestra. We went to Oman and played La Boheme out there. And um, as a 21-year-old violinist, sitting in that orchestra under Lauren Mazel was at once one of the most terrifying <laughs> experiences <laughs> of my life. But I mean, I that is where I learned to play an orchestra, you know? Yeah. I forever after that felt comfortable in operas and in orchestra just because the level of attention that you, that he demanded was extraordinary. But then, but then kind of like how I mentioned with you, it's like he, he demanded absolute attention from you as a player. And he could tell if you were bullshitting. <laughs> like he, would call, he was not afraid of calling someone out if, if someone was phoning it in or not paying attention. But then if you did the performance was seamless. Just the way he interacted with the, the singers and the orchestra was so like, obviously for him, second nature. And it was extraordinary performing with them in that way. So anyway, and I, I, yeah, read, I read in your biography that you'd worked with them um, a bit, which I actually didn't know before. So 
I just wanted to hear your take on Lauren Mazal. Yeah, he was so incredible. So I uh, worked in, with Mazal actually right before he died uh, in the last year of his life. Um, and I'm sure also that was a very different experience in some ways, because I think I think he felt that he was at the end of his life. And so he really gave it all in a way that was incredible. But what a mind. Um, and also the fact that he had he started conducting when he was like 10 or yeah. 12, like with major orchestras. Mm -hmm. So he just knew music in a way that nobody knows music <laughs> because he lived it, breathed it from before he hit puberty. Mm -hmm. I think there, there are these videos somewhere of like little Mazelle in a tuxedo uh, <laughs> conducting these major pieces and major orchestras. Um, but my first experience meeting Mazelle, so I, I was a Castleton actually, and I arrived and um, uh, they gave us, uh, uh, I had to cover all of this repertoire, but it was like 40 something hours of music or mm -hmm. more altogether. And I knew I knew some of it already, but most of it was new to me. I was in my, I think early twenties at the time or mid twenties and I just, it, it was so much repertoire. And so I spent months studying it, but it was massive, including several operas. And one of them was Madame Butterfly, which I had never conducted before, but obviously I studied before getting there. And I got there a little bit early and I wanted to right away see what was happening that day. And the only thing at Castleton happening was some singers sing through of some butterfly. And I kind of went to it just to check it out and see what the singers were doing. It was great. And the next morning, someone wakes me up at 9 a.m. and says, um, we need you at 10 a.m. to conduct a Zitz probe of Madame Butterfly. <laughs> and I'd never conducted Butterfly. I had listened to a few singers from this cast do some of it the night before, but that's it. I had never worked with this orchestra. The orchestra had already had rehearsals on Butterfly, um, but Mazel wasn't feeling well, or I think actually also he just wanted to kind of see <laughs> what would happen. I think it was also a sort of test. Mm -hmm. um, and an hour later, and, and I had just an hour, so whatever I knew, I knew I had to get dressed and get over there. <laughs> um, and so I show up and here I am just conducting all of Mother, Madame Butterfly all the way through. Oh and uh, I was lucky that the players, first of all, were supportive and went along with this because I think you could you could be in a situation where people are like, what is this? <laughs> <laughs> but um, who were great and a concert master who worked with me. Was that collaboratively, Potch? Right? Yeah, that was Potch, yeah. who was amazing. amazing. Yeah. And, and Apache worked with me and he realized where uh, where I was looking to him to see what the orchestra had been used to doing in the spot or where he where I needed to give him something and also was really willing to follow along and go with me on the interpretive things that I wanted. Um, but yes, there I was conducting Butterfly for the first time ever and it was the singer's first time with the orchestra so they were nervous. And it was the orchestra's first time with the singers and Mazel sitting in the back of the orchestra on a big chair <laughs> and just sitting there and occasionally waving at me to show me to do something differently <laughs> to match what he liked or what he was used to. It was absolute trial by fire. I'd never done anything like that. I was very thankful that I had had a lot of opera experience. So at least I 
knew my way around and could figure it out. And I was very thankful that I had studied the piece extensively before getting there, but that's still not the same. Um, but I have to say after things like that, you certainly are ready for anything. Mm -hmm. um, and in a way that was the best possible learning experience. And even to have him there in the moment, show me some things, but he never stopped me because sometimes the way people even teach conducting is they'll stop every three bars, which ends up being so discombobulating yeah. and you can't make anything happen. He maybe stopped me once for some specific thing, but in general, he didn't stop me. He sat in the back, he showed me visually what he would want in some places if I wasn't doing what he was thinking, like move this along, I prefer it faster, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and otherwise uh, he allowed me to do it and he gave me some thoughts afterwards um, that informed what I did the next time. Uh, but it, it was the doing in that moment that was the best possible experience, um, especially at that time in my life. And it also prepared me to be able to just go on and do something with little preparation because especially as a young conductor, you're so often thrown into a situation where you don't have enough rehearsal time or somebody else has rehearsed the orchestra and suddenly you're, you're thrown in there to do your thing or um, it's a last minute replacement or whatever it is. Um, so being ready for that, I think is so crucial. Well, the, the Mazel trial by fire. <laughs> yes, yes. We had a similar situation because when we got to Castleton, we were asking, well, is there like a seating audition? And um, they said no. So Mazel is very good at um, conducting and, and observing people in the orchestra and kind of seating people that way just like based on his observations. I'm like, okay, I mean, you know, it puts a little pressure on you when you're just, you know, playing at the first rehearsal, see if he's judging everyone. Um, but I'm like, all right, I've never done it that way before, but here we are. Um, two days later, we get a similar email or whatever instruction, 10 o'clock tomorrow or whatever, t noon tomorrow, we're going to have seating auditions. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> and, and they sent us some excerpts and also moving the solo Bach or whatever it was. And um... <laughs> that was typical Mazelle. Yeah. And, and I'm sure it was by design yeah. <laughs> because you wanted to see how you do it under pressure yeah. in that situation without having the preparation, mm -hmm. right? It's... it's brilliant, but it's great. And it, it, I think putting that kind of trust also in young musicians is so important because in real life, in the professional world, as you know, so often you do have to fly by the seat of your pants and mm -hmm. make it happen in the moment and be ready for anything. Like we said at the beginning, especially in opera, actually. Um, and I think uh, putting that trust and um, just giving people an opportunity to fail, frankly, mm -hmm. or to succeed or to do some combination of the two, which is usually the case, <laughs> yeah. is itself so important. Well, it's, it's um, cool that we, we uh, got to experience Mazel while he was around. Yeah. Um, I only wish that we had many more years uh, with him because mm -hmm. I think he had so much more to give. Yeah brilliant musical mind and very generous, very generous to yes. musicians. Exceptionally generous. Um, well, we've, we've gone an hour and 15 minutes or so. Thank you so much for your time. I thought this was an amazing conversation. Thank you. Thank you. It is so great to catch up and to hear your thoughts on all of this as well. Always um, so wonderful to connect uh, with other people, especially during this time.
Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this this podcast has kind of been a, a little a little experiment, a little little trying something new. Um, it's it's my little quarantine project, as as we have all had different quarantine projects, but but conversations like this make me uh, happy and make me think. You know what? I think I'm onto something. <laughs> Well, I love what you're doing, and I learned about some musicians who were new to me also by checking out your podcast. So oh, thank you. Thank you very much. So, and I'd love to have you back on anytime if you're working on something new or, or just to catch up. But, um, but yeah, thank you so much, and uh, best, w- best wishes to everything you're doing out there in Chicago. Thanks so much, Joseph. Great to talk to you. Take care. All right, stay take safe care. and stay healthy. You too. Thanks. Bye. Bye.